0: I'd like to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to the uh, book of Colossians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a congregation of Christians living in the city of Colossae. Colossae today is in modern Turkey, and this was a city that was on a trade route, once a much larger city, but by the time that Paul wrote his letter to the young Christians living in that city, it was a city that has diminished in size. Other cities around it, like Laodicea, Hierapolis, had grown commercially larger and were more influential and more significant than was Colossae. It was a, a trade market city, particularly for wool products, and it was an area where you would have had a number of traveling visitors passing through. And the congregation was impacted by its location, as all congregations are, by the particular community in which it existed And it was subject to a variety of influences and perspectives, some of which obviously were not Christian, but some of which also had been mixed in to the Christian teaching of that young congregation as they were beginning to sort out what it now means to belong to Christ and to be in Christ. And Paul wrote this letter from his jail in Rome. Out of concern because of a report that he had heard from one of the representatives of the congregation who had traveled the some 1,000 miles to speak with Rome, uh, to speak with Paul in Rome about the circumstances that that congregation was facing. And I'd like to begin reading, actually, in chapter 1, in order to sort of give you a feel for what Paul is writing to these Christians as we lead into the particular passage that we'll be looking at here as the basis of our study today. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Please join with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, as we come before you now to look at this passage of your word, we pray that your spirit would accompany the teaching of your word and open our hearts and minds to receive this word into our lives, that we may understand it, that we may love it, and that we may act in obedience to it, that we may be established in our faith and that we may be rooted solidly in order that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Be with us now, we pray, as we consider our subject before us to your glory and honor. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you go to work this week and you have a conversation with the people that you know there, and they find out that you go to church and they ask you what kind of church it is and what do they do there, and they ask you the question, so do you have a pastor? And you would answer them, well, yes, we do. If they were to ask you this question, how would you answer it? So what, after all, do pastors do? What are pastors hired to do? Some people talk about how they're absent for six days of the week, and on the seventh day, they're not understandable. People can't figure out what it is that they're saying. Maybe they don't know what they're saying. But if you were to answer that question, what do pastors do, what kind of things would be in your answer that you would provide? I thought it was a good opportunity, in the absence of Pastor Larry, to be able to speak a bit about him behind his back while he's gone. (laughs) Oh, this isn't one of those sort of church parking lot conversations after the sermon. This is a public moment where we're all together, and we can think together about what the Bible teaches about the role of ministers. Some of you know that I grew up in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I was born there in the late 1950s and had the privilege of growing up there during the 1960s and 70s. Gettysburg is a small, sleepy little country town of about 10,000 or under, and it's a town that has never ever been able to grow larger because it's surrounded by the national park, the battlefield. It was there that a great battle took place in 1863 over July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Some 50,000 men were killed, wounded, or disappeared during that three days. More people than died in the Vietnam conflict, actually. It's a town that, for its size, is known around the world. A lot of people know what Gettysburg represents. and They know that Lincoln's address was given there in November of 1863 as he gathered to dedicate the National Cemetery in honor of those who had died on that field. Well, Gettysburg is is famous not only for that, but it's also the place, and most people, unless you're Lutheran, don't realize this, but it's also the home of the very first Lutheran Theological Seminary in the United States. There were a number of German immigrants who came to Maryland and Pennsylvania. They founded educational institutions, among which Gettysburg College was one of them, and Gettysburg College was associated with the Lutheran Theological Seminary at Gettysburg. And so you have the oldest standing and still ongoing seminary, now quite liberal in its perspective, but nonetheless several hundred years old in its ministry there to the United States. If you had asked me in the 1960s, do you know where ministers come from, I would have said I sure do. They come from up on the hill over there, (laughs) And, and they come out wearing these black outfits. And as I got a bit older, if you had asked me as a teenager, so... What exactly are ministers? I would have said, well, they're middle-aged, balding men who wear strange combinations of polyester clothing and are relationally dysfunctional. (laughs) That's what I thought of ministers growing up in the Lutheran Church. I just didn't see them as men who could relate to me. It was a different world growing up in the 1970s, and, and what they did with their liturgy and their outfits and just their very demeanor just didn't connect well. I didn't really understand what they did. Well, as I became a Christian in 1976, I prayed that God would lead me into a church that had solid Bible teaching, and over the course of the coming months, I was introduced to a really solid Bible teacher. He was a man with long hair and a beard and drove a dune buggy, and he taught the Bible in expositional fashion, and we would often gather at his farmhouse on Sunday evenings to read books by Francis Schaeffer and others as we looked at the great issues facing the church at the end of the 20th century. That was my introduction to Christianity as a 17-year-old, and it was a wonderful opportunity to hear real Bible teaching, and in him I got to see someone who was a, a real pastor, and he became sort of a spiritual father figure to me. And in the course of time, he transitioned from that congregation he founded, and another man named Bob came into that ministry, and he, too, also had a significant influence on my understanding of ministry. Bob and I would meet together on Monday evenings and talk about the challenges of ministry and all the things that he was told it would be like and all the things he discovered it wasn't like and the challenges that he had to learn on his own as he sought to care for a congregation of God's people. So I had two very good men who were very helpful in helping me understand what the role of a pastor is and my understanding matured and I came to appreciate who pastors are and what pastors are called to do as they seek to minister the word of life through both word and deed in the lives of the congregations that they serve. Well, the Apostle Paul provides us in the passage that we read not only an understanding of the message that is to be preached and how we are to perceive ourselves if we have embraced that message as believers in Christ, finding our identity now in Christ, not in what we do or what we once were, but who we now belong to. And also, he speaks to us about his concerns as a leader among God's people and the way in which he opens up his heart to this congregation about the way in which he sought to act in ministry on their behalf. With the congregation, as I said earlier, that he had not actually met And it was a congregation that, for obvious reasons, he had not founded, but yet he had a sympathy for and a concern for, even at a distance. And so what I'd like to do with us this morning is take a few moments to look at some of the characteristics that Paul modeled for being a shepherd among God's people. And so our time won't be so much a detailed exposition of some of the verses that we're using as a foundation, As much as it will be an opportunity to provide an explanation for the motivation that Paul has as a leader in the church of Christ. And it would be my hope that at the end of our time together that you would have a deeper appreciation for shepherds that Christ raises up to care for his sheep. So that when the pastor returns, you'll be able to come alongside him with more understanding of the responsibilities that he has as a leader in the church. First, I'd like to begin by looking briefly at what Paul has to say about himself in other passages of scripture by way of just associating some verses. Remember that Paul was a man who was an educated Pharisee. By the standards of his day, he was a somebody. He was someone who had graduated from, if we can say it this way, the Ivy League rabbinic Jewish institutions of his time. He was a man well-educated in the history of his own people, in the culture, in the customs. And he was a young man who was a star on the rise. He was intelligent and capable. He had studied under Gamaliel, who was one of the leading rabbis of his time. He was a man who had impeccable credentials. And he was quite confident of himself in his own righteousness before God because he believed that he had, in fact, kept all that was required of him to be a Jew who was in good standing with the Lord God of Israel. He believed himself someone who had attained status, not only before men, but also in the eyes of God. And in the course of time, as the church began to grow and prosper and spread, it was seen as a threat. And opposition among the Jewish community began to grow and multiply. And Saul eagerly joined in with that voice of opposition. And you remember the story as he recounts it in different places in the book of Acts where he was en route to persecute Christians who were living in Damascus, Syria. Damascus is not a place I would want to visit today. We see it on the news, and it's a terrible pile of rubble and violence. But that's the location. That's where he was going. And you can see that the gospel had spread out from beyond the boundary of Jerusalem. Remember that the gospel is to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the outer world. And Paul, in the passage we read here, says that the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. He's talking about the advance of the kingdom. That kingdom that Jesus said would not be thwarted, the very gates of hell being breached by the advance of the church, The enemies of the gospel will not be able to prevent the advance of the gospel. And Paul saw that advance taking place. Now, at the time, he was known primarily by one of his several names, Saul, which would have been his Jewish and not Greek name, because he grew up in a mixed culture where he had both Jewish and Greek influences in his life, and to whatever degree, family lineage as well, in terms of the naming of the children. And here, we find him en route to take out these believers. And what happens? It was there on the Damascus Road that the risen Christ confronted him. And he confronted him in such a way that Paul was taken with physical blindness. And in that moment of time, where he was now physically blind and in the presence of this God who he believed he was serving but now realized he was persecuting. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus is saying the people that you have targeted are my people and they belong to me. They are in me and I in them, the vine, the branches. They are in Christ and they belong to Christ and you have no business destroying that which belongs to God. They are his, not yours, to do with as you please. And in that moment of blindness, this man, so well-educated, for the very first time was able to see clearly. What a paradox. Close your eyes for a moment and ask yourself the question, how easy would it be for me to get back to the car when this sermon is over, if I kept my eyes closed? And then the question you have to ask is, which one of us is going to drive the car home now? (laughs) And nobody wants to go there. But to understand that for that moment in time, this man, for the first time, was able to see clearly. And what did he see? He saw the glory of Christ as he exposed himself to him with the light shining around him. But even more significantly, he saw the wickedness of his own heart. And for the first time, he was able to see what's wrong within him and he was broken. Think back upon a day in your own life when you too may have for the first time understood the wickedness of your own heart and seen your own unrighteousness in a way that you were broken, broken to the point of tears, broken to the point of sobbing. And all the other things that you've done, all the niceties that mark your life in your best of moments, you see now for what they are simply a shallow surface thing that's it's there. It's not that it's absent, but it's not what makes me, me. At the very heart of my life, I see my own wickedness in my motivations. One of the older people that I worked with some weeks ago when I was visiting with her, she's a sweet little lady in her 90s, and she very graciously and quietly said to me, I've done evil things. I've done evil things. And if you were sitting there when she said that, you would have said, no, it's not possible for you to do that you're a sweet little grandmotherly type of lady i mean you've surely loved everybody over the 90 some years of your life you've been just exuding kindness and affection to everyone how could you but she saw her own heart i didn't ask what those evil things were she knows them and she's a christian and she knows before god she can be forgiven of those things but it was just one of those good moments where someone is openly honest and transparent about who I really really am and Paul discovered that on that day and that's how God begins to create followers and out of those followers he makes some leaders because you can't be a leader unless you first become a follower and to become a follower of Christ is to be someone who recognizes the guilt of their own sin and their need of the mercy that can be found in Christ and in him alone. So at the very beginning of Saul's Christian life, he was a man who saw the depravity of his own soul and the graciousness of Christ in coming in mercy to him, a man who showed no mercy to those who were now followers of the way, whether they are adults, whether they are children, but now finds himself the recipient of an undeserved mercy that he did not earn and that he did not achieve, but was graciously given to him. It's what Luther called the alien righteousness of Christ. Sounds like a strange phrase to us, the alien righteousness of Christ. But in the day, some 500 years ago, alien simply meant something outside of ourselves, something that doesn't originate within ourselves, something that comes to us rather than something that we create within us. And God brings us his righteousness where he declares us not guilty for Jesus' sake, because Jesus is the one who both died for our sins and provided that ransom and that reconciliation that enables us to be righteous before God. He gives us what we do not have and credits it to our account. It's what God says through Paul in one of his letters when Paul writes that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's what Luther called the great exchange. When I talked with one of the elderly people the other week, I said to them, do you know what you contribute to your salvation? And they said, no. I said, your sin. That's the only thing that you contribute to your salvation. Well, what about my faith? You don't contribute faith. Faith is a gift of God. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Even the act of faith is a gift of grace. It's nothing that you can credit to yourself as if though it all depends upon me in some manner or another. It's ninety nine percent God, but I gotta have faith, you know, it's my one little percent, it's just a quiet little thing, but you know, I can treat no, no, no. It's only about what God gives to us. That's what grace is. Grace is grace. It's the alien righteousness. And even the ability to believe is God's enabling us to believe when we see that we cannot save ourselves. It's the drowning person who gives up all hope of delivering themselves. They stop their own flailing, and they now rest in the arms of some deliverer to take them back to safety on the shore. You're resting, resting as we sing, but do we believe? Well, Paul understood. And then he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And Jesus commissioned him, having called him and brought him to salvation. He now commissioned him to be his representative, to be an apostle, And an apostle, quite simply, is someone who is sent. They are sent to represent another. He's a herald. And heralds in the ancient world were responsible for one thing, for conveying the message of the sovereign, of the one who they represented. They could not, as it were, manipulate the message to be anything other than what they were commissioned to say. They made an announcement. And Paul was someone who was set apart by the risen Christ to announce the good news of the gospel message, the good news of God's graciousness that can come to sinners such as Saul and deliver them, not just from themselves, but from the wrath of God that is to come upon the unrighteousness of mankind for their sin. Salvation is more than just deliverance from myself. Sometimes we reduce it to that. Well, I know I've made a mess of my life and you know I could do better at this and that and if God could kind of like help me be a little bit better. But it isn't just that. It is delivering you from that, but that's not the primary thing. It's delivering you from the judgment that awaits you for your sins, for who you are by your nature and what you've done by your deeds. We sin because we're sinners. And anybody in this room that's a parent knows full well that you did not and I know you love your kids, but you did not have to teach them how to do wrong. They started to do that instinctually. They did that from the beginning. And where did they get that? Because they came out that way. And it was within their heart to do that. Because they were born with a sinful nature. That's why they do sinful things. And you see, the gospel deals not only with the deeds that we've done, but the root of the cause, the nature of the problem, which is more than just the things that we do. It lies inward in the heart. It's out of the heart that are the issues of life, Jesus said. And this is where Paul, in his understanding of salvation, went through a revolutionary paradigm shift where his whole world was turned upside down because he came to see that the righteousness that was required in the law of God was never a standard that he could earn or keep, but ultimately it's a standard that shows us our inability and drives us away from ourselves as if though we could acquire a righteousness by doing certain things, To bring us to a point of despair where we look outside of ourselves and say, who will deliver me from this body of death, like Paul says in the book of Romans? And then he can say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul is a man who was once an enemy of the church of Christ. Had we existed then, and he was one of our contemporaries, meeting here in this room on this day would surely have been an opportunity for him to come and visit us and you didn't want to meet up with him if he showed up. I sometimes wonder what it was like for him later in life as he looked into the eyes of the children or others whose families he had divided, perhaps imprisoned or worse, and what it would have been like for him to have the memories of those moments where he came only now to find we trust forgiveness from those families, not because he had earned it, because he was really sorry in a big way, but because they had all come to understand the grace of God in Christ. And the forgiveness that I've received is the forgiveness that I'm to now give to others because of who he is and what it means to belong to him. So he was a man who was called, a man who was commissioned, and a man who had a distinctive content to his message. And that message was all about Christ and him crucified. When he wrote to the Corinthian Christians, he said that, I desire to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. And we heard that as we read through chapter 1 here as well, where he talked about what God has done for us in and through Christ. That was the focus of his message. That was the heart of what he was preaching. He wasn't preaching himself. He was preaching Christ. And the focus was not upon himself but upon what Christ has done for his people, upon Christ as the exalted Lord, as the one who is preeminent in all things and is to be preeminent in the hearts and lives of the Christians that belong to the congregations in Colossae. These Christians were probably only five or ten years old, so they were a fairly young congregation of people. Back in the 1970s, when I started reading my Bible, before I finished my senior year of high school, I had also been reading various Eastern religious books, some Sufi religious books in particular, and one by a, a forward Harvard professor by the name of Baba Ramdas. At least that's the name that he had taken for his Eastern religious practices. And in reading these books, I came across the concept of karma. We've all heard the word karma. It's used in a lot of the Eastern religions. What you do will come back upon you in some manner or another, sort of like a boomerang for good or bad. And I really couldn't differentiate between karma and sin. I was reading about sin in the Bible. I was reading about karma in these other books. I thought it must be kind of the same thing, just a different word from a different culture. But later I learned that, no, there's actually real differences in understanding of providing explanation for what man's problem is and how man's problem or problems can be fixed. And the Bible has its own explanation for how things got to be the way they are and how we can fix them by God's grace through Christ. But at the time, I couldn't distinguish them. I just wasn't mature enough. I didn't know enough. And that's the very issue that's being addressed here in Colossians, because these people were young Christians. And Paul, in his letter in chapter 1 and chapter 2, begins by talking about the love that they had for one another and how that love had spread out throughout the world, and they were known as a loving congregation. But having affirmed some of the things that they were doing right, he then, in verses that are just beginning where we stopped reading, talks about them needing to be aware of being sort of uh, captured by vain philosophy or deceitful ways of thinking. Some of the amalgam of mixture of Eastern and Jewish thought mixed in with Christian teaching that were kind of common in the city of Colossae in a way that it was impacting the life of the church. In other words, they needed to have pure doctrinal foundations if they were going to grow strong and be healthy as Christians. It's kind of a no-brainer when you think about it, because we understand that when it comes to what we eat. We have to be careful that we eat the right things and not the wrong things, because we know what happens if we eat the wrong things. It's like one of the medical students that I worked with at Harvard Law the past couple years, when we talked about type 2 diabetes condition and, and what eating habits needed to change in Jim's life. And he said, well, it really depends on how painfully you want to die. (laughs) It's like, well, thank you, my friend. (laughs) That's a way of focusing the issue. Okay. Uh, What you eat will determine the outcome of how you die. Will it be easy or will it be painful? It was a good way of a a young guy in his 20s, as a a medical student, saying, well, you have choices here. I'm not saying you don't have choices. (laughs) It's up to you (laughs) You know how, how the years will unfold. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to sound doctrine, making sure we're in a place where you get reliable Bible teaching in order that you can truly have the mind of Christ and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and being grounded in the truth, all of which Paul speaks about here in these opening verses. And these Christians were in Christ, but the challenge was they needed to understand more about Christ and what it means to belong to him. And that's a lifelong concern that we should all have, that we are continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Just the other week in the men's Bible study that I participated in, I don't remember if I shared this the other week, um, one of the men was talking about how at the service they attend on the property He said, usually I put $5 in the offering plate. Now this is a person in their 80s or 90s, okay, so it's whatever savings they have left. And he said, uh, but I looked at my wallet, and I didn't have five ones, and I didn't have a five. I only had a 10. So he said, I thought about it for a moment. I thought, okay, I'll just go ahead and put the 10 in. But he said, I folded it in such a way that the 10 mark was up so that the next person in line would see I put in a 10. And then he said, I thought to myself after I did that, what are you doing? What kind of a man have I become? I should know better than this. I mean, it's, you know, I'm trying to advertise my righteousness and my generosity. Uh, And he was convicted of, of what he knew to be wrong in the way in which he did that for sure. It's the very thing Jesus condemns in terms of, you know, showcasing your righteousness and your offerings and so forth. But I thought, how wonderful. You know, here he is in his 80s and, and he's actually thinking about that. And it's a simple illustration, but I'll probably never forget it because it's so true of what is the deeper issue in our own lives as it surfaces in the little incidents of things that we can manage to pass off like that. And so Paul wanted to help them understand what it means to live in Christ, to find their identity in him first and foremost, not not in anything else. There was a man who supported the ministry who graduated from Harvard Law School some years ago and he went to the university as a non-Christian. He went to the law school as a non-Christian, and he eventually became a partner at a very well-established firm in New York City. All goals that he established for himself as a 10-year-old when he first thought about being a lawyer. And he said, if you had met me when I was a university student at Harvard and said, so who are you? He said, I would have looked back at you and smiled and said, I'm a Harvard University student. He said, a few years later, if you had met me and asked, who are you? He said, I would have smiled back at you and said, I'm a Harvard Law School student. A few years later... I'm a partner at such-and-such firm in New York City. But he said, when I sat down in the big chair in the corner office looking out over the city, he said there was a sense of emptiness. And he said, I worked all these years to get here, but I wondered, is this how it's supposed to feel? He made a lot of money, but then his family came apart his wife wanted to leave him and they had two children and he was not a Christian and he cried out to God for mercy to fix the mess that he had created and God saved him he became a Christian. And he did the same for his wife and their family was preserved and they're happily married today and he's involved in a kind of Christian ministry using his legal skills now. But his whole thing was wrapped up in his identity as a lawyer. That was first and foremost. That was the important thing. And even when we talk with people, and I do it, you know, we ask questions. So what do you do for a living? Okay. And sometimes, in the wrong motivation, that's a way of kind of like figuring out whether you're somebody you want to spend time with or not. Oh, that's your job. Okay, well, it's was nice meeting you. Yeah. Yeah, move on here and meet somebody else. It's kind of like the realtors in the one community we lived in when we pastored in Tennessee, and they like to hang out at the big churches in the community because it was there that they could meet the wealthy new people moving into the community. And it wasn't so much about the church's worship as the location, as a networking opportunity for them. Well, he wanted these believers to understand that in Christ, they are people who have now had their worldview reshaped to belong to him and to him alone. And their identity was first and foremost in Christ. But that's something about his message I want to talk a little bit about his manner of ministry. Did you notice what he says here? I rejoice in my sufferings, in verse 24, for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. And then a little bit later, he talks about how it was that I toil, struggling with all his energy, in verse 29, that he powerfully works within me. And then he goes on to say, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. The language that Paul uses here is descriptive of a wrestler in a wrestling match. And any of you familiar with wrestling matches know that wrestlers don't want to have a second round. They want to win that match in the first round, and they put all their energy in to subduing their opponent. It's not a matter of stretching it out. It's a matter of finishing it as quickly as they can. And so unlike some sports where you save that little bit of energy for the extra burst at the end of the track run, you're putting all that you can into it from the very start to take that other person down and put them away. And Paul is saying that same type of concerted, focused commitment to seeing it through and finishing it out is what I'm committed to in prayer and in my ministry on behalf of you, even at a distance. He says, I want you to know what kind of struggle that I have for you. You hear Pastor Larry saying, I will pray for you. I do go through the prayer request and I pray. That's the kind of thing Paul was talking about. I do this on your behalf. But you know, as you read through Paul's letters, you begin to see some of the obstacles that he faced and the challenges that came with ministry to God's people. Being a pastor is probably one of the few jobs in the world where you are paid to afflict the consciences of your employer on a weekly basis. (laughs) Most of us don't go to work on Monday morning and confront our supervisor over their ethics and morality. Most of us, if we're in the military, you don't have a sergeant confronting the lieutenant or the captain about their character and their morality. You wouldn't last very long. But ministers, strangely, are hired by kind people who want to hear God's word taught and want to have it applied in a way that is helpful to them. But in the application of God's word, people can become convicted and become angry because the minister through God's spirit is blessing that word to the conviction of their own lives and the realization that they need to change and oftentimes when they don't want to hear that they get rid of the person who's bothering them and they trade out ministers because it's easier to get rid of somebody that's afflicting my conscience and to keep paying them and for me to come back week by week you know to this kind of situation well I remember when I was teaching at Knox, I asked my students, I said, are you willing to work somewhere where there are no rules and the Bible doesn't matter? And they looked at me and they said, well, Dr. Garrison, we're we're planning on being pastors in churches. I said, I'm talking about the same place. Because oftentimes the Bible is thrown out and it's not there as a foundation for how people live when push comes to shove and we're forced to actually deal with the problems here. One time, trying to do ministry in a setting that wasn't as conservative theologically, When I talked with some of the denominational leaders about the reaction of some of the people in the congregation, they said, well, what we think happened here was when they hired you, they hired you to come and to teach them God's word. But they did not expect that you would apply it to them. (laughs) I mean, it's silly if it wasn't so tragic to say it that way. But it was true, because people just wanted something that would be comfortable and not something that would be applicable When I pastored in the South, sometimes they said that when you get to the applicatory part of the sermon, the preacher has gone from preaching to meddling. You're starting to meddle in my life. You're know, you starting to say things that, I don't want you to work out the application of this for me. (laughs) I don't need to hear that. That bothers me. It conflicts with my conscience. Well, when we talk about Paul struggling, I began to notice in his letters, and maybe you've noticed it too, that sometimes he speaks about the opposition that he faced. In Galatians, he says, have I become your enemy because I spoke the truth to you? Mm. Now think about that. In, In the letter that he wrote to the churches in Galatia, he wrote to them about a problem that emerged after he had helped found those congregations. People came in, Judaizers, who were saying, well, you know what Paul said is kind of true as far as it goes, but it's faith in Christ plus circumcision if you're really going to be right before God. And he didn't, like, say everything that needs to be said or do everything that needs to be done. And he he really just didn't care for you the way that he should have if he really, truly, you know, represented God. And to write that when he says, I was the one who helped, humanly speaking, birth you into the faith. And now these people who, by God's grace, were born again through the course of his ministry are now turning upon the very person who gave them life, humanly speaking, and they have become his enemy because someone else had corrupted their thinking about the integrity of his ministry and the message that he preached. Or in Corinthians, when he says, I was as a nursing mother to you or as a caring father. Terribly intimate images of someone who is loving for and providing life to and preserving the people that are under their supervision and that are in their home. Think of the times when he was run out of ministries, or when he was discredited as a man who couldn't be trusted, as a man who was doing it for the money. His reputation wasn't that good if you were looking at an employment opportunity for a new pastor. Well, How many times had he been arrested? How many times had he been kicked out of communities? How many congregations didn't want him? How many times did he have to say that I have fears within and troubles without? I cry often. And on top of this, I have the burden of all the churches. He uses language like that in the Corinthian epistles to talk about the struggles that he faced in Christian ministry. When I was an undergraduate at Covenant College in the late 70s, at that little church that I was part of, this new pastor, after being there for about a year, said, well, you know, you've never been to an elders meeting. It might be good for you to come once so you could see what they're like. And he invited me to come to this meeting. And in that particular meeting, one of the elders decided to vent his anger at the new minister because the new minister wasn't like the former minister. Well, they were two different men. But the point was this man didn't get it, and he decided that what was wrong was just the new minister. And there I was in a little country farmhouse outside of York, Pennsylvania, and it was a summer evening. And everyone was kind of sitting in the chairs in the living room and during the course of that meeting that man started yelling and then he got up and was really yelling and screaming at the pastor and the pastor ended up falling on his knees weeping in the middle of this little group of men and you had these other elders sitting there in shock and you had this guy going on and yet I saw the love of Christ being modeled in this minister's life as he unburdened his heart at what he had tried to do and coming there to care for them And I thought, oh, this is what they don't tell you about in seminary. This is what takes place between Sundays that most people don't see that is the challenge of ministry. Why would they treat someone like this who only came to care and to love and to provide, through God's word, leadership among them? But that's ordinary, and it can happen a lot in churches because people don't understand the role of the minister, or they're actually opposed to what he's actually there to do. It was the worst of introductions to becoming an elder in a church, but it was probably the best of introductions because I got to see the reality of the challenges that are there for people who are being faithful. There must needs be divisions among you, Paul says in Corinthians. Why? Because the word is preached. It's going to end up dividing because it will show people for who they really are. Some will be sheep, some will be goats. Some are sheep who need to repent of being acting like a goat. (laughs) But the point is the ministry has its challenges. And so Paul can speak about the suffering that he faced as well along the way. These are just some images that you find in the New Testament to describe the work of the ministry of the gospel. They're examples of someone who has given his life, as Paul said here, to the cause of the gospel, that he might present every man complete in Christ. He says in verse 28, Him we proclaim, meaning Jesus, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And one of the words that he uses there is the basis of a whole Christian counseling philosophy called nuthetic counseling. It's the idea of confronting someone with the true situation of their life that they may see it for what it is and be called to repentance that they might turn from it. And that's what Paul is saying my ministry is about. How did he do that? He did that publicly in moments like this. He did it personally as he went from house to house. You read about that in the book of Acts. When he catechized the people, when he instructed them, and as he got to know them in their particular situation, giving them guidance, giving them exhortation, all of which was designed to help them grow and mature into the likeness of Christ. Because that's progressive. That's something that takes course over our lifetime. That's why we come and hear the preaching of the word. That's why we build each other up in our most holy faith as we gather together among the communion of God's people. And Paul is saying, this is at the heart of what I do as a minister of the gospel, this responsibility that God has given to me. When Paul was confronted by the risen Christ and said, what do you want me to do? He didn't volunteer for a short-term mission trip. He said, what do you want me to do? And the course of his life was then patterned out by Christ commissioning him, such that Paul, from that moment on the Damascus Road, in his blindness, which was restored with physical sight and now the spiritual sight he had, was a life lived in the service of Christ for all the rest of the years that he lived on planet Earth, such that by the end of his life, he could say that when I stood before the emperor at my first defense, do you remember what he says? No one stood with me. Well, would you want to go to the emperor's court and realize that if you're there with him, it's likely that you're going to have the same fate as he probably will have? And yet he was faithful, and he ran the race until the end. And that's the example that he provides. It's the example of the great ministers that we read about in the past, some of whose names we know, most of whom whose names have been forgotten but are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and will be honored and respected for the service that they gave in the cause of Christ. Some people are obscure. Unless you saw the Billy Graham special the other week, you probably won't know who the traveling evangelist was that he went to hear as a young teenager who, by God's grace, he came to faith in Christ through the preaching of the word in his little rural community town. That man's name, once known, is forgotten to us. But millions know this other man's name because of his faithfulness over the course of the decades that God raised him up to serve and to preach the gospel. Well, such is the work of the Christian ministry, such is the work of the pastor, such is the message that they give, such is the manner of how they serve. And when you have someone who is rooted in the word and seeks to be faithful to the person of the word in the way in which they carry out the application of the teaching of the word, that we might grow in perfection. You should be thankful for whatever the infirmities are of any given minister and the limitations of their personality, their gifts. Nonetheless, in Ephesians 4, the risen Christ has given pastors and teachers to his church for the purpose of what? To equip the saints for ministry. And if you have someone who is faithful in doing that, it's a cause for real gratitude because there are a lot of people who don't mm-hmm. I won't tell you where but I just was given an article by a seminary that I knew and even studied at and they have completely capitulated to some of the political agenda of same sex issues and they're bending over backwards to apologize for certain injustices because some people have raised criticism over someone who had once been on the other side of the issue and it's not even a matter of forgiving them not that they need to be forgiven but they're acting like if you ever had the belief that this behavior is wrong you can never ever serve in leadership in our denomination period you're gone it's a totalist perspective and this denomination is capitulated and that location is where young students will graduate and they'll come out with those minister uniforms and go into locations like this to preach what to preach Christ and him crucified probably not so be thankful if by God's grace, he's intersected your life with someone who is seeking to be faithful and who understands the importance of these things. And for that, you have reason to thank God when you leave this place today and continue to exhort him and his family uh, and lift them up in your prayers as you seek to build him up as a man of God who's seeking to be faithful to the word of God and to the Christ who has called him and commissioned him and in whose hope he finds his salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this moment in time when we gather here on this day. And we thank you that uh, by your kindness you have uh, intersected our lives with a place where your word is foundational and where Christ is loved and he is placed before the people week by week. May you continue to bless uh, this pulpit and may it always be faithful during the duration of its life here in this world. And may you help us to better understand better appreciate, and better support those who you have set apart to equip the saints for ministry, that together we may build up your church in the way in which you have designed and called us to as your people. We ask this now in the name of Christ, who has gathered us together on this day. Amen.